0: You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant news-making issues and individuals.
1: The choice whether or not to enter a military conflict is one that is often shrouded in mystery until decades later when historians have access to some of the decisions that went into the discussions. But what if you could determine a leader's inclination to fight based on a number of independent variables— How might it affect elections or negotiations between leaders? Alan Stamm is the Dean of Leadership and Public Policy at the Frank Batten School at the University of Virginia. He and his two co-authors in their book, Why Leaders Fight, have provided an interesting and new way to consider how education, childhood, and military experience, if any, might influence a leader's tolerance for risk and conflict. Before we get to discussing your book, tell us a little bit about your school. Is leadership something that, that can be taught?
0: Absolutely. Not everyone can either be a great leader or actually is interested in being a leader. But for those that are and have essentially the predispositions, there's a lot of training and education that can make a huge difference in their ability to be successful.
1: As our listeners know, I studied at the University of Virginia, received my master's at the university, and so the field of international relations is often in flux. There has always been a great deal of discussion on nation states, but really not as much focus on leaders across the board. And so that makes your work so unique. How did you come about doing this, and what were some of the research tools that you were able to use that
0: perhaps others
1: had not taken advantage of?
0: It's a good question, and the answer to the first part, how we got started, is a little funny. One of my co-authors, Mike Horowitz, was a graduate student at the time and was given an assignment, come up with a hypothesis that no one's really tested much lately. In a discipline where there's hundreds of people studying war and conflict, sometimes it can be hard to come up with a new idea. And then we realized that, in fact, for the last 30 or 40 years, leaders as such have really been systematically ignored. And so that was just came out of a literally a conversation with the two of us. The challenge for us was we want to change how people think about leaders, not so much about an individual, but get political scientists, economists, sociologists to start thinking about leaders again. Fifty, a hundred years ago, they actually were the object of a lot of study, but much less so of late. And so we realized we'd have to use the tools of modern political scientists and economists if we would have any hope of convincing them. We realized that if we wrote, for instance, a handful of biographies, social scientists would likely be unpersuaded. And so what we decided to do was take their tools and hoist them up with them. And that's what we've done in the book.
1: So you use a database Mm -hmm. called LEAD. Tell us about that.
0: So what we were interested in looking at was, are there systematic effects associated with different background experiences? And so we built a data set of roughly 2,400 political chief executives, presidents, dictators, kings, prime ministers, going back to the mid-1800s, all the way up through the early 2000s. The first thing we did was identify all these leaders, and then we started collecting information about them. Importantly, about their early childhoods, their adolescent years, and their early adult years. Things that today we would say were experiences that, for instance, really shaped how you and I might think about our own futures. And so in the end, we coded or kept track of about 45 different types of experiences. Were your parents divorced? What type of school did you go to? Did you go to college? What kind of job you might have had for your first years? Did you grow up poor? Did you grow up wealthy? And what we found is there's some really both interesting and very powerful correlations between people's early lives and then the kinds of decisions they make about foreign policy when they come to power.
1: And this data set goes to what year?
0: 2007.
1: Have you kept it up to date?
0: We have.
1: (laughs) So I'm going to come back to that in a minute. I think there might be some interesting questions there. We don't have time to talk about all of the different variables that you look at, Mm -hmm. but let's take a few. How does the age of the leader affect their behavior? And we're pretty much narrowing this down to whether or not they're inclined to engage in a military conflict. Yeah, that's right.
0: Use, essentially, use force against their neighbors or respond to a threat from a neighbor with force. Age was actually how we got started. That was the first paper we wrote. We chose that because it was, one, easy to identify and clear. You can't, it's very difficult to have a long argument about how old someone was when they were elected president, for example. But there's also a big literature about the effects of aging on men. We could talk about this. Most of the leaders are men. And the argument generally goes in the psychology and physiology leaders. Older men tend to be less aggressive. And so we started with that as a prediction. And what we found was in authoritarian states or in dictatorships, younger leaders are far more aggressive, far more inclined to use force. Interestingly, in democracies it seems like the democratic institutions take this into account and so either they have rules that bar very young people from becoming president or prime minister or they have institutional constraints that prevent young leaders from actually using force. So what we see in democracies is just the reverse. It's the older, wilier leaders that have figured out how to circumvent many of the constraints they face institutionally, and in democratic systems, it's the older leaders that are more inclined to use force. But if force. I'm
1: looking at my lifespan, and I know I only have a few years left, I'm in my 80s or something like that, does that not affect my behavior, and I want to get things done while I'm still in power? Yeah,
0: that's right. One of the suppositions we have is that, and this is, I have to put this a little delicately, as we get a little older, our time horizons shrink (laughs) and our opportunities to accomplish great things become fewer and fewer. And so we do find that there is a group of older leaders that seem to be quite aggressive or risk-acceptant as they get to their late 70s and early 80s and tend to seize on whatever opportunities will come their way.
1: Another part of your book that I really found interesting, especially looking at some of the recent conflicts that we've seen, say, in the last two to three decades, is the difference about whether or not a leader had enlisted in the military, and then further, whether or not he or she had been involved in conflict. Elaborate on that.
0: Sure, again, it's a great point. And interestingly and importantly, it actually comes up in presidential campaigns and campaigns for prime ministers. So what we found in our data is people that have served in the military, but not combat, tend to be quite risk-acceptant. They seem to be more than typically willing to use force against their neighbors. Leaders that have served in the military and served in combat, actual combat, not just in a combat zone, so they would have been in an infantry unit or an air force unit where they saw air-to-air combat, those leaders tend to be actually more hesitant to use force than we would expect on average.
1: Let's talk about Khrushchev and JFK.
0: So both Khrushchev and JFK experienced extraordinary violence, extraordinary episodes in conflict. Khrushchev on the Eastern Front against the Germans as the army commissar there, he saw just extraordinary violence, death, and destruction. JFK and the PT-109 incident uh, suffered through attacks personally and loss of crew members. Both of them were acutely aware of the personal and family and national cost to high level of violence. What we've seen with leaders of those types is the threats they make tend to be seen as very credible by potential adversaries. Threats made by people that don't have combat experience of that type sometimes can be sort of tested by their adversaries or opponents because the adversary or opponent might not be sure, is this a bluff or is there real weight behind this threat? With both JFK and Khrushchev, both of them realized their adversary knew what they were talking about, had personally experienced extraordinary violence, and if they were willing to threaten such, probably meant they would also be willing to go through with those threats. As a result, what we see in the Cuban Missile Crisis is both sides initially escalate quite dramatically, but then when it becomes clear that the risk has gotten very high, both sides become interested in working on a deal to de-escalate.
1: And you really saw that Khrushchev and Kennedy are the ones who pulled us back from the brink. While they're colleagues and staff were perhaps yeah, more that's, aggressive.
0: It, it's, re, it's correct, and it's really interesting, and it, it, it highlights a distinction between military leaders and political leaders in civilian roles. So both Khrushchev and Kennedy had been military leaders, but then they become civilian leaders in the head of their country. So Kennedy is getting advice from military leaders that would lead him to be quite bellicose. Khrushchev is getting the same from his military leaders. And this is a common thread that's been widely recognized. Both of them, though, also recognize they're serving a much larger constituency, politically and socially, than the military leaders might have been at the time, and so are willing to pull their countries back from the brink.
1: Okay, well, let's get to 2020. We're heading into the election. The Democrats look like there's a strong likelihood that there might be a woman Mm -hmm. running against President Trump. I know from reading your book that the data set of women leaders is still statistically too low compared to some of the other attributes that you look at. But what might we say about a woman as president?
0: It's funny, the genesis behind that chapter came from a conversation with my mother, of all people. She had seen an early draft of the book and she said, where are the women? And I said, well, mom, there's not enough women leaders historically for us to have statistical purchase on this. And she said, frankly, I don't really care. You need, you need to address the role of women in leadership roles. And so we went back and we looked much more closely at the individual biographies. And two things really come out of that much closer look. The first is, in general, women leaders don't look all that different from the perspective of the use of force than other leaders. They do tend to be targeted more by potential adversaries. Potential adversaries tend to think that, oh, it's a woman leader, they'll be willing to back down. And so almost every female head of state has been tested very early on in their period of leadership. The other thing that jumps out is that there have been no sociopathic homicidal female leaders. So if we look over the last 150 years, there's roughly 20 to 25 men that have treated human life worse than cavalierly. None of them are women. There are important examples in the Middle East, Golda Meir, for example, that have been willing to use force to defend their country and don't seem to be much more casualty-averse, for instance, than her male counterparts had been. Margaret Thatcher is another woman who's notable for having a steel spine but they look very similar to what men in the same circumstances from their country and similar periods would look like. There are no female Saddam Husseins, female Hitlers, people like that.
1: When you look at Golda Meir, and you talk about this a bit in the book, look at her neighborhood. That's so different than Margaret Thatcher, and it seems almost as if Margaret Thatcher was looking for a conflict while Golda Meir had to be the recipient.
0: As we say in dance and international politics, it takes two to tango. The conflict the uh, Malvinas or Falkland Islands War, the Argentines would have a different view of this, obviously, than the British would, but I think that a disinterested observer would say that was not so much as an opportunity that was forced upon Thatcher, but that it was a crisis that, regardless of who was in office, she or he would have had to deal with it. In the Middle East, again, people have infamously observed the Middle East is a tough or bad neighborhood, depending on one's perspective. Again, gold of my years choices look very similar to the same kinds of choices that we would see with someone coming from the same political party, for example, in the Israeli government, either previously or subsequently.
1: All right, let's go back in time to 2015. Sure. Where would President Trump land in your analysis?
0: President Trump's an interesting one. So uh, unsurprisingly, we've had lots of questions about that. Our evaluation of risk is importantly domain-specific. One of the things that came out very early on in our conversations with psychologists that study disinhibition or risk behavior is they made a very important point to us is that people can be very risk-acceptant in one domain and quite risk-averse in another. Trump seems to be somebody that actually is quite risk-acceptant in the use of economic conflict, diplomatic conflict, certainly in the use of language, by any stretch of the means. He seems to be in some ways, though, more hesitant or risk averse in the actual use of force than someone we might have expected otherwise. Some of the other leaders that we looked at were the reverse was true, that we see people that are very hesitant to take risks economically, but are willing to take risks with military forces. The current election is going to be fascinating simply because on the Democrat side, there are so many different candidates right now, 20 plus candidates. And for most of them, there are very few that look like they'll be in the tail of the distribution. Most of them look like from a risk perspective when it comes to military force, that they will actually be pretty typical, fairly typical American leaders that in the distribution of sort of historic world leaders seem to be quite risk-acceptant in the distribution of American leaders, not terribly different from the mean, though.
1: Well, I want to thank you so much for being with us. We barely scratched the surface, and I hope you're going to keep on keeping this up to date.
0: Oh, absolutely. It's a pleasure, Jim. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org.